Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment you're nailing it and the next you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Balance Parent Podcast. I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and I have a guest here with us today that I am so excited to welcome to the show. So we're here with Dr. Jacob Kashwagi, and I know that we're so excited about this because I brought him up in my Balance Parenting community, and you guys had all sorts of questions for him. So I'm going to let him introduce himself, and then we're going to get to work because we have to pick his mind. Jacob, thanks so much for being here. Will you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, Laura, thanks for having me here. I used to be a professor at Arizona State University. I was a research professor, so my main job was actually to get research for the university and bring in dollars, pretty much. So what I did was I'm in supply chain management. I have my PhD in supply chain management. I received from an engineering college in the uh, Netherlands, and then I worked at Arizona State University, and currently I'm a supply chain management consultant, but some of my PhD students, off of some of the things I was teaching at the university, they liked it so much and it helped them so much in their life that they created a nonprofit organization through winning some competitions at ASU, and they created the Leadership Society of Arizona. And so I'm acting chairman of the LSA, and I donate my time to, to help mentor teenagers and college students. Okay. And that's kind of where I'm at. Awesome. Awesome. And you have a unique perspective on mentoring and leading. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So uh, I do have a unique perspective, and it, it was partly in due to how I was raised. Um, I grew up in a family of eight kids. I was a middle child, so I was a fourth. And for the longest time, I grew up in a very traditional Japanese family, which is very much you respect your elders, you follow the rules, and there are a lot of rules. And anyone who, who knows a lot about Asian families, they're very big into academics. And so it wasn't only that you got all A's, it was how well did you do compared to all the other students type of thing. Mm. So if I got a 90, well, if everyone else got 98, then, you know, that wasn't really that good. And so that's a traditional Asian mentality of family. And we had rules for everything. We had rules for eating, when you could eat, when you could sleep. During the summer, we had a rigorous summer school program that my mom created for us, and it took more than half the day. And 
on Saturdays, we did chores. We couldn't watch cartoons, which when I was younger, television cartoons were a big thing for kids. And we couldn't watch them until we finished all the chores. And by that time, they were gone. And we didn't have, you know, recording devices or you could stream things on, on the internet. So it was very tough growing up in my family. But a funny thing happened when I was around 11 years old. My father came home with an epiphany because he looked at my oldest brother's eyes, who was 19 at the time. And he asked him, what are you going to do now that you're an adult and you're going to go out on your own? And he saw blank eyes. And I don't know if you've ever seen blank eyes in a kid, but it's scary because they have no vision. They have no clue of what's going on. And my father saw that in my oldest brother, that he was completely lost. So he took advice from a mentor at the college, which was he had no rules. He said, you have no rules. You do whatever you want. And if you get in trouble, come and find me so I can help you. Hmm. And so he brought that home to our family. And so the younger four siblings, they grew up with no rules. They grew up with absolutely, they could do anything they wanted. They didn't want to go to school. They didn't have to go to school. They didn't want to go to, we, we were religious. So they didn't want to go to church on Sunday, which everyone was forced to go to church. They didn't have to go to church. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to do any chores. They didn't have to do any chores. And for the longest time, I thought that my youngest brothers would grow up to be spoiled, rotten, good for nothing brats. And the whole family actually thought that. Even my father. I actually had to protect them from my father because he was doubting what he was doing sometimes. But he stuck with it. And it ends up by the time that my brothers got into their junior and senior level of high school, they actually became more responsible, more creative, more intelligent than any of us. And even though I'm an older sibling, I can say it's correct. I watch my younger siblings. They're more responsible, definitely. All of them got married at a younger age. My youngest brother has four children now. He's just barely turning 29. He's just a great guy. But we didn't see that until actually they got a little older. And as I saw this, and as I was starting to mentor college kids, I started to realize that the principles of letting people find out who they are letting people figure out on their own and giving them their freedom to have the ability to experiment on what they like, what they don't like, what they're capable of, that it actually allowed my younger brothers to grow quicker and make their mistakes younger. So as they grew up, they were more confident and they had more courage in what they're doing. And so um, as I saw that, I started to apply this to actually mentoring college students that were coming to me as well as high school students now. Okay, so this is fascinating. And the social scientist in me is like, wait, did anybody do a case study on your family? Because that's a beautiful natural experiment. <laughs> but, but probably they did not. Okay, so I think it's interesting to think about a family where half the kids experience kind of one extreme of high control, you know, obedience mindset parenting. And then the other half kind of gets this kind of radical, not like kind of like the radical unschooling community. Do you know what unschooling is? I do not. Okay. So the unschooling is kids are educated in by following the kids lead and the kids decide, oh, decide how education happens. Anyways. I, and there's, I am familiar with that. Just not the term, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I have mean, read about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's kind of like you guys were doing like radical unparenting kind of in that way, you know, like, um, but you no, know, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Because when you look at it and this is the same with business. And, and so it's funny because the same principles my dad was applying to our family, 
is the exact same principles that he was applying in business in that he taught me on how to do business. And what he taught me was, if you have managers and workers, the more important the managers are, the less skilled the workers have to be. But as soon as you take away the management, then every worker that comes into the company has to be more skilled. And he taught me the same thing with kids. The more important the parent is, then the less skilled the students or the children need to be. But as soon as the parents start stepping back and unparenting or not parenting, yeah. the more the kids actually have to develop, have to grow, and the wiser they have to become. And, yeah. and so that it is kind of like an unparenting type of thing. Yeah, I love it. So I have a couple of questions because there's a few people who are in my community who have older kids and younger kids and the older kids have been parented in a way that's not as respectful, not as conscious and very much obedience mindset oriented. And then younger kids who they are attempting to parent much more consciously in a much more balanced and peaceful and respectful way. And the older kids are experiencing some feelings about that about you know why didn't we get this parenting why don't like why don't they have all the rules and things we had and I'm kind of curious about what your perspective having been in that place how you handle kind of how you experience that and made sense of it as a kid so this is really actually a tough question because everyone is different so of the four older siblings which I'm included my Older three siblings always had a a tough time with the younger siblings getting more, not having as many rules, being able to do whatever they wanted. For me, I was a unique kid. I actually loved to be obedient. And so for me, when I saw what was going on, I actually was like my father's sole support. When nobody else wanted to do chores, I volunteered to do all the chores. Mm. I I volunteered to, to do the things nobody else wanted to do. I always tried to support this structure of no rules that and, and keep it going as long as, as we could. And the older kids, of course, they're going to have to do more. Of course, it always seems unfair. And of course, the younger kids, even if you don't release control or don't eventually allow more freedom, the younger kids always get more. Why? Because the parents get wiser as they have more kids. And it's a natural thing. And so it's very tough to deal with. And I saw my parents have to deal with it all the time. But for me, how I dealt with it was it was my lot in life. And I accepted it. And the way I looked at it is it was making me better. I had to work harder, but I got a lot out of it. And, you know, my younger siblings, they actually look up to me like almost one of their parents. And I love that bond I have with them and that they always come to me and ask me for advice and whatnot. And so to me, the pain I went through when my parents were punishing us and they actually had rules for punishment to be brought against us and the work I had to do and all the chores I had to do, I actually have seen how it's benefited my life in a different way than my younger siblings. And so I I never looked at it as being unfair, Mm -hmm. but my older siblings did. And I still don't know how they've coped with it technically. You know, it seems like everyone likes each other now. But I do know it was very tough at the time. And my parents tried to be as understanding of them in their opinion as they could. But it's something I think that every child, they actually have to figure out on their own. It's not something you can actually teach someone. Okay. 
So tell me a little bit more about, because the, the folks in my community were really interested. And listeners, if you are in my community and if you want to be so that you can get to guide questions that I ask, you know, my guests, I hope that you'll join it. It's the Balanced Parenting Community on Facebook. But they were very interested in particularly around how values and priorities and kind of the, the guiding culture of a family can get communicated to kids without rules. And so I'm kind of curious about that. Like, so with your younger siblings, how did your parents communicate to them what's important to your family? What good values are? This is a very good question. So, but to answer, I have to explain how the paradigm worked of no rules. I would love that. So how this works is there's no rules. You can do anything you want. But the shift in my parents were because there are no rules, What they identified was instead of the rules being important and the structure of the family being important, it was more important to support the kids. So when they did this, their whole goal was to whatever the kids wanted to do to help them, wherever they were at in life, to help them with it. And other than that, let them go and figure it out on their own. And so when you talk about how they relayed their values to us, They didn't relay anything to us. Their goal was not to relay, hey, this is how a good human being works, or this is what you need to do, or this is what's important in life. They didn't have the desire to relay that anymore. Mm. And so they did relay values to us, but it wasn't their desire to relay it. They waited for us to, to ask them questions and to ask them for help. And what ended up happening was their example actually showed more than anything. I'll give you some examples of this. Like, for example, nobody wanted to do the dishes in my family. And so after the no rules, there is a lot of conflict at first. But then my father realized, if I'm going to keep the structure, then if something doesn't get done, then I have to do it. And so actually was really tough for my father because he was working as a professor. He was actually doing a lot of research at the time, trying to make a world-class construction research organization, which he accomplished. But when he came home and he was tired, he'd actually do the dishes for us. And he would do a lot of the chores that nobody wanted to do. And all of us kids saw this. But usually what happens is the kids don't really like the parents because the parents are always like getting on them for school or not doing chores or trying to help out more or be different, be more social, do whatever, right? But our parents never did that. So we all wanted to be their friend. Because whenever we went to them, they they were always encouraging us. They were happy. They loved to play with us. They loved to do the things we loved to do. And so as we went to them and we learned about what they're doing and we watched my dad struggle to be able to get all the chores done and everything, my younger siblings started to realize we need to help our dad out. And so without being told anything, they actually started to help out with the dishes and with the yard work and the chores. And, you know, that's how they relayed the values to us is we got to know who they were. And sometimes we would ask them questions on, hey, what would you do in this situation? And they say, well, this is the reason why I do this or that. Mm-hmm. And of course, we'd be more likely to listen than to hear them because they wouldn't try to enforce it on us or they wouldn't try to talk too long to us about, hey, why aren't you doing this this way and this way? Yeah. Okay, so I feel like I'm going to pull out a few things that I hear you're saying that they got a lot of influence 
because they, instead of focusing on control, they focused on the relationship and the connection that they had with their kids. Yes. And they modeled for their children the way they wanted their children to be and to show up. And as a result, because of the relationship and the modeling and seeing it, their kids knew what to do and intrinsically became motivated from an internal drive, from a desire to remain connected and to engage in a mutually beneficial relationship with their parents. Um, And as a result, they participated more in chores kind of as they got used to this new system. Definitely. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. It's very hard to teach someone values if they're watching you and they don't see you doing the same thing. I remember a high school student relaying to me about how the people around him, parents and and adults, that they were trying to relate the value of honesty and integrity and how they forced him to do certain things because it wasn't, you know, what he was doing wasn't honest. But then he tells me, well, I just saw them do this the other day and that was completely not honest. And so it's, you know, it's, I don't know what they're trying to tell me. Oh my gosh, kids have the best meters for hypocrisy and agendas. They can smell, like even the youngest kids, even three-year-olds can sense a parent's agenda and hypocrisy. They're so good at picking it up and we can't hide any of that from them, you know? And we shouldn't try to, right? And it's really hard. And, And that's why being a parent or even being a mentor is so hard. Because in order to mentor right, you have to be that person that you're trying to teach. And so even in our organization, Leadership Society of Arizona, before anyone can really mentor on their own, they actually, it takes three to six years to become a mentor because the individual has to actually go through a changing in their own life and actually apply everything they're going to teach and live it and to be able to, to act in the, a similar manner. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's this concept in the respectful parenting community called modeling graciousness. So when we ask our kids to do something and they say no, or I'm not going to do it, we might ask again. But if the refusal is pretty strong, um, we offer help. We offer them grace. We offer them compassion. And often that means we do it for them. And what's beautiful about this in my own family, because I've been practicing that principle with my kids. So after dinner, we all take our own plates over to the dishwasher, you know, scrape them in the leftovers into the trash or whatever, or put them away and then put our plates in the dishwasher. And there were plenty of times when my oldest was young and she's like, no, I'm not doing it. And I was like, okay, I can see it's hard for you today. Let me help you. You know, and that was my response. And now when her little sister says, no, I'm not doing it, she will look at her and say, oh, Evie, it's hard for you today. Here, let me help you. And she takes her sister's plate and like, yeah, and it's beautiful. And I can imagine that if we're applying that to all sorts of different situations, just that principle of this is hard for you right now, let me help you. And that, that is a guiding principle for the way we relate as a family. I think that that could be a very beautiful thing. Definitely. And I even take it to the point where some people, they will never be capable of taking their dishes to the sink. And this is very similar to many teenagers going through high school. Parents want them to get good grades and everything. And they just don't have the motivation for English or for math. 
And, you know, even as much as the parents want to make that uh, instill a value that they love math or they love English or something, and they can, might be able to even force them to get good grades for a time, but that person will naturally never like math or never like English. It's just not built in some people. And in that case, you have to find something they are good at. You have to find something they are willing to do to help out. And so my family didn't do dishes. Well, you don't do dishes. Well, maybe there's another way that you could help out that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you, you like going out and doing yard work, or maybe you like to help your sibling do their math homework. You know, there's a lot of things that you could have a child do instead of having a mindset that they have to do these things that I think are important. Yeah. Okay. So as you were talking just then, I, I feel like I had a few like objections pop up into my head, you know, like the (laughs) old obedience mindset (laughs) objections that like as respectful, conscious parents that when we're trying to undo the way we were parented, like they come up. So like, but you don't always get to do what you want. What, how was this preparing people to go out into the workforce and have a job and have to follow directions? You know, like I, these are just some of the objections that I, I feel like people are probably thinking or like, but then how do I actually get them to pick up their toys? Or what if they're fighting and they're hitting their brother? You know, like, like how does this actually work? This is how this works. And I think I have this mindset because I come from academia and the industry. When you meet enough people in the industry, you start to find out there's more than one ways to skin a cat. And what I mean by this is that as you start working with professionals in all sorts of industries, and I've had the ability to be able to go all over the world, working with hundreds and thousands of professionals, you start finding that there are some professionals that still don't know how to clean up after themselves. There are some professionals in certain industries that don't even know how to write. They don't even know how to read some of them. Some of them, they don't even know how to take care of things that are theirs. And when you start seeing this, you start realizing, what am I trying to teach a kid that you can't be successful in any other way if you never learned how to clean your room? It's actually not true. Um, I, I've seen many programmers out there now that didn't know how to keep their room clean, always messy, always playing video games when they're young, never paying attention, never respecting anything, just wanting to play their video games. And some of these people are making hundreds of thousands of dollars now. Mm-hmm. I've seen someone who makes their living purely off of going and vacationing at the most expensive places that they can find. Oh my gosh, where is that job? <laughs> I want it, that job. <laughs> you know, it's one of the influencers that yeah. they became a blogger, especially when they're in high school and they got a lot of followers and people kept following them. And they started tweeting about what they're going to do or blogging about this and all the different social medias. And now they get sponsored to go out and waste their time just doing nothing in these amazing resorts. Yeah. And it's a funny thing when you start to open your mind that there isn't just one way to be successful. In fact, if you look at all the greatest people in the world right now in terms of money, in terms of businesses that they've created, developed innovative ideas, 50% either did not go to school, college, or they went to college, but they got like on average a C grade. Mm. Or they went to a college that was like a community college even. Mm -hmm. Right? And these are 50 of the most successful, prominent people, 50% of them didn't go to college or just went to like a community college or, you know, a a nowhere college. And I think of all the parents out there thinking, I got to raise my kid to go an Ivy League university, or I got to raise my kid to go to college even. The times are changing. Google has just released a program in conjunction with 50 very big corporations 
that are willing to take a student out of high school going through six months, I think. Yeah, I just saw that come out. Of yeah. curriculum, and they're willing to hire these people afterwards. Yeah. Yes. I think something that I, I feel like I've been hearing as you are talking about this experience that you had growing up and this principle of allowing children or young adults to guide themselves. It seems to me like this would make a, for a a person, an individual who is very aware of themselves, very in touch with what drives them, what their passions, what their interests are, and who has experienced radical acceptance and knows what that feels like, knows that their worth isn't tied to their behavior or completing a chore chart, but that they are worth something intrinsically. And Definitely. And if you go back to your original question, which was, well, how are these kids going to learn, you know, the values? How are these kids going to develop being able to wake up on time or being able to go to their classes or be more responsible? Mm -hmm. And I always ask parents, Who's more likely to be more responsible and be more respectful? Someone who feels good about themselves or someone who feels like they have no value? Someone who everyone is supporting or someone who every turn they're saying, people are telling them they're not good enough. Who's more likely to be rebellious? Who's more likely to excel at the things they're doing? Someone who knows what they're good at or someone who doesn't? And obviously, all of the good characteristics you want a child to develop always are developed more and and more consistently in students who have support, students who everyone praises them, students who are allowed the freedom to figure out what they're good at and find out who they are. And so, you know, that's how you instill these things you want them to learn, is you give them the freedom to figure out who they are, what they enjoy, how they operate. And they will naturally, without any teaching, develop this on their own. I love that. And I think so many parents who find my podcast are looking for the right way to do this. Their confidence is so low. They don't know how to tune in with themselves, listen to themselves and trust themselves. They're looking for experts like you and me to tell them what the right thing is, what the way is, the way to raise confident, successful, happy kids. If we just find the formula and somebody tells us what to do, we'll do it and we'll do it right. And I think that starts in childhood. It starts with yes. the way we're parented, where we are told, yes. put your desires to the side to serve mine. Do what I ask. Obey me. You know, listen to me. And I'll tell you that versus right. listen to yourself and you'll tell me what you need. You know? You're right. You think of the traditional childhood, especially go 10, 20 years back, maybe 30 years even more so. But from kindergarten, all the way through college, what's happening here? You're being told by adults all over what to learn, how to learn, when to learn it, all the way through school. And that's how our education system works. That's how the parenting system worked back then. So you go to school, you're told what to learn, how to learn, when to learn. You go home, you're told how to act, when to act it, how, you know, what you're supposed to act like, all these things. And you're taught this all the way up until you're around 21 to 24 years old. Well, what is a child going to do after 24 years of being told what to do their whole life? They're going to one, 
wait for someone to tell them what to do. So they're going to be raised and act like a follower, someone who's waiting for someone to tell them to do something before they're willing to do anything. The second thing they're going to do is they're going to turn around and do the same thing with their children and anyone who comes to them. They're going to try to manage, direct, and control them because that's the only way they know how to run with life, how to interact with people. But I also have to say with that, it's never too late to learn. I was teaching a grad course, and there's a, a lady there who I think she was around 24 to 27 years old. And I'm teaching her about how you have to figure out who you are to be the most successful. This was an engineering student. She thought about it and she said, well, how do I learn this? I said, well, it's going to be tough for you now because when you're young, you have no job, you have no significant others, you, you have no responsibility. You can go out and change and do whatever you want from day to day. But now that you've already spent all this money going to college, grad school, you got a full-time job, it's really tough for you to figure this out. But, you know, she went and she tried. Come to find out, she got rid of her occupation. She went and became a blogger and a, a YouTube video person. And I just looked her up and found out she's become really, really successful. She makes a ton of money off of just making YouTube videos now That's awesome. and totally changed her career. So it's never too late. I always tell people. I think that's so awesome. I agree. It is never too late to repair, to walk back what we've done with our kids and try something new if it's not working for us. So how do we let go of control? How do we step back and let our kids take the reins? What does that look like? Like, so one of my listeners asked this, I'm just going to read her question because I thought it was beautifully stated. Okay. I want my child to feel that his life belongs to himself rather than living what he's told to. I also want to guide him with the values, morals, and to extent goals we hold while allowing space for him to become who he wants to become. How can we balance that? How can we do that? Okay, so I tell all parents, first off, there's no parenting method that's better than another. Because if you have a child, you were meant to parent that child, meaning all of your mistakes, all of your notions, all the things that you care about, all the things that you do, it is perfectly tailored to your child. So even though it might not follow any of the principles that we might have been talking about or I might be promoting, I always tell parents don't even worry about it. Because in the end, whatever you do is perfectly right for your child. It's what your child needed. It's the only life your child could have. That's why you're their parent. So that's the first thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say is because of that, you have to forgive yourself of any mistakes you've made in the past. You did the best you could with what was available to you and what you understood. And so moving forward now, there's a couple of ideas I have. Whenever you want to release control, let your child live their own life. There's two things that will interfere with this methodology. One is if you feel your child's safety is involved. If you feel your child will physically get hurt or will be put in an unsafe situation that you cannot accept, then you put rules on them or you, you tell them what to do or you control them in some manner. Two is on what you can deal with. If you are going to go crazy by letting them go and do nothing all day, and it's going to cause you so much stress, then don't do it. Then put controls on them. Why? Because it's better that they have a sane parent than they have an insane parent and that they're given freedom. 
right? Because a parent is part of the stability in child's life. So with that being said, these are the two constraints, remember. You can only do what you can do, and two, the safety of your child. Now, assuming that you're sane, that you can take it, and your child is safe, then this is what I propose. You tell your child, you can do whatever you want. And as things come up, then you have to work with the child. Now, here's the thing. The mentality is, it's okay for you to talk to your child. It's okay for you to tell your child to do things. But when your child starts to push back, that is when you know that you're trying to control his life and trying to teach him something. And you're not giving uh, them, him or her, their freedom. And so I always tell that's the point. Unless the other two things interfere, the point is, when you see your child pushing back, what does pushing back mean? It means you set a rule and they don't follow the rule. It means you tell them something and they roll their eyes at you and they don't want to listen to you, but you're forcing them to listen to you because you're the parent. It means you even like you tell the child something and they don't do and you tell them again and they don't do and you tell them three times and they don't do it and you keep telling them. When you have to keep telling them more than a couple of times, it means they're pushing back. <laughs> they're resisting. <laughs> yes, it's not the child who's the slow learner in that situation. <laughs> but as long as you see the pushback, then there is no right way to do this. Then it's more of you talk with your child, you work with your child, and you see where your child wants to land. And every child will be different. Some children, you're okay to tell them, hey, how's your grades doing? Hey, what's going on in school? And they don't mind at all. In fact, they want to talk to you about it. Some kids will be, I don't want to talk to you about this at all. I don't want you to butt into my grades. I don't want you to check up on me. If I fail, I fail. And there, you have to have a lot higher of a tolerance and patience for children like that. But if you do have that tolerance, I would let them go and find out what they're willing to let you do. Maybe they're willing to go out and play video games with you, or maybe they're willing to do things with you. But in this type of um, model, the key is your relationship with your child, that you find something that you can do with your child that your child wants to do with you, that you find a way to create a relationship where your child actually loves to spend time with you. Sometimes you can spend more time. Sometimes in order to have that relationship, you have to spend less time. <laughs> you just never know. And that's why it's so difficult for parents to do this, because inherently in a model of giving a child freedom, they will make mistakes, right? A lot of parents are in their mind, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to give them freedom and they're going to be awesome. No, not making mistakes is something you have to learn. You have to develop capability to not make mistakes. And once you give someone their freedom for the first time, are they going to be good at it? No. When you give a child their freedom, <laughs> is their mind fully developed? No. They're going to make big mistakes, but you'd rather them make the mistakes when they're young and learn from them, rather than when they go to college and they gain their freedom for the first time when they're 21 years old, and they do something fatal, or they do something that really is going to cost mm -hmm. you money by dropping out a year of college. That's a lot more money than dropping out of third grade or right. you know, kindergarten. The stakes are low when they're young, right? And we want them when they're young to know, to learn. Like when I make a mistake, when I screw up, when I'm an imperfect human being, like we all are, that I can go to my parent and they'll help me through it. So that when the stakes are higher and they're, they were supposed to be the DD at a party and they, they ended up drinking and, you know, the, or partner is, you know, be starting to be controlling that they know like, okay, so I've got 
this problem and I know when I have problems, I can go to my parents. That they'll accept me and they'll love me and they'll help me. They won't lecture me. They won't ground me. They won't punish me. They'll help me, right? Definitely. And I've seen this firsthand. My younger two brothers, when they were given their freedom, they did everything that a child would do. That is a parent's worst nightmare. They didn't want to do anything. They didn't want to go to school half the time. And they didn't have to go to school. In fact, my mother would excuse them from going to school if they did not want to. But amazingly, after you know, a little while of not going to school, they end up wanting to go to school, especially since they knew that on any given day, if they didn't feel like it, they could skip school and, and they would be excused. Mm-hmm. So they actually went to school on their own. They actually end up going to service projects and things on their own. But this was after years of not doing their homework, not getting very good grades. You know, they're Asian, so analytically they they had in their genes so they could get through math class doing nothing, get a C, get a B. But when they came home, they would play video games all day long for years, right? A lot of parents, when they start this, and when we coach, I always mentor the parent and the child because the parent needs as much coaching as the child does. Mm -hmm. But the parents are always saying, well, they've been playing video games nonstop now for a couple months. And I tell them, it's only been a couple months. My parents dealt with three to four years of my brothers playing video games nonstop. In fact, my younger brother even went to a friend's house during school days, stayed there for a whole week. He didn't come home for a week. Finally, his friend's parents had to tell him, hey, I, we think you need to go home to your family now. And so he's like, okay, I'll go home to my family. And he came home. <laughs> for a whole week they were just on a play day they, they just did like nothing all day and it's amazing <laughs> but they made their mistakes early on in their elementary and junior high school years that as they start to get into their high school they actually my brother he had a television in his room he actually replaced the television on his own with the desk so that he could study and as they played video games all day all night they realized it didn't make them happy by the time they got older, they realized, what am I doing with my life? I'm wasting my life. And they looked at some of their friends and they looked at my mom and dad and they looked at the older siblings and they saw, wow, they combed their hair. Maybe I should start combing my hair too. No one told my younger brother all the way into eighth grade, ninth grade to comb his hair. He just naturally started to comb his hair on his own because he watched other people. And so it's amazing when you give people freedom, what they learn. Wow. So I feel like for sure that there are people who are listening to this who are thinking like, I could not handle that as a parent. Like I would not have the tolerance or the patience for that learning process. And I, I like even for myself thinking about like, I don't know that I have the tolerance for that. I wonder like, have your younger siblings ever expressed to your parents, like, I wish you had made me clean my room, or I wish you had, you know, told me that my hair looked like a mess and I needed to brush it. Like, have your younger siblings ever expressed that, that they wished for a little bit more control or input? Definitely. There's always opportunity costs. For example, my younger brothers, they never applied for any scholarships. Why? Because they knew that my dad could have a waiver at the university and they didn't have to pay for anything anyways. But they didn't get the prestige of it. They didn't get the ability to accomplish something. My younger siblings, they didn't learn to play the piano. All the older four siblings, they all had to learn piano. I still play the piano today and and I'm decently good at it. And so sometimes they say, I wish you would have made me play the piano or whatnot. But then they stop and look at it and they realize 
that because they had their freedom younger, yes, they didn't get to do certain things. Yes, they missed out on certain opportunities. But because they learned when they were younger, the things they missed out on by far are so minimal compared to what they did partake of because they were responsible, because they were mature, because they started life earlier, because they understood who they were earlier. Right now, my younger sibling, he got married when he was, what, 21 years old. He's had four children before he turned 30, right? And he's loved it. And he hasn't had a lot of the issues and had to wait longer to find out where his spouse was. Because he knew who he was, he found his spouse a lot earlier, mm-hmm. right? He didn't have a lot of the issues that the older siblings had and trying to figure out who the right one is and then trying to start a family and things like that. And they got through college much quicker than people usually do. They were able to start their careers much quicker. And because of that, the opportunities that they have picked up, they realized were much greater than what they gave up. Did that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. I Absolutely. I think they never had to unlearn who they were. They never had to undo messages of this is who you are. They always knew how to listen to themselves. And self-regulation comes with age, you know, and practice, you know, and so. Yes. Yeah. And it sounds to me like this approach to parenting takes quite a lot of trust in your child and trust in a process. Okay. Now it takes no trust. Oh, okay. See, this is a business thing too. A lot of times in business, they want trust. But we always tell business people, never trust anyone. See, because look, if something is simple, simple is like if I were holding up a water bottle. If I release that water bottle, everyone knows what direction it's going in because it's simple, right? Everyone understands the law of gravity. You know it's going down. If I release it, it's going down. Everyone can see it. If you had to trust me, it means it's not simple to you. It means you can't see it for yourself, which means if you can't see, it's complicated. And if it's complicated, you're always going to be surprised. And when you get surprised, you're not going to like it. This type of parenting, we do not want to trust anyone. What we want to do is make things simple so that you don't have to count on me telling you the water bottle is going to fall. You can see it yourself. You don't want to count on me telling you your child's going to make it. You want to see that for yourself before you begin. In order to do this type of parenting correctly, there's a lot of things out there, right? But in my view of how it's done correctly is it goes off of three principles that you have to follow. First, it's individual centered, meaning a parent correctly doing this. They don't just say, go and have your freedom and I'm not accountable for anything now. No, what they have to do is they have to let the child do anything they want. But as a parent, their workload becomes even more (laughs) because now you have to understand who your child is. You have to really get in and figure out who is your child? What are your child's capabilities? When you look at how rude your child is going to be to other people, you need to be able to know exactly where they stand on their politeness. Is your child someone who, when you give them their freedom to all their friends, to their teachers, they're going to just curse them out and tell them I don't have to do whatever you tell me? Or do you have a child who will get angry at their teacher sometimes, but will try to be polite? Or do you have a child who just is totally understanding of others and given their freedom, they'll be totally polite. They'll be always thinking of other people and how their words affect other people. As a parent, you have to know that before your child acts, which means you have to know your child really well. 
which means you can't have any preconceived notions of what your child should be like. You have to observe it and see it for yourself on how is my child? How rude are they? How polite are they? How disciplined are they? You don't want to just trust that your child is going to be totally disciplined. You want to know exactly where it lands. They land on the scale, right? Because when you know who your child is, then you can do things as a parent that meet them at their level, right? If you're trusting your child is going to be completely polite, and then you get a phone call from a teacher saying, hey, your child just totally was disrespectful to me and whatnot, you're going to get surprised and you're going to be like, I need to punish my child now, or my child needs rules again because this isn't working. But if you know your child isn't the most polite student, then you can do things with your child and you can put things in effect with your child that will help your child be a little bit more polite. And you need to know what the capability is, right? And so that's one of the principles is individual centered. Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like what you were just describing, that's what I think of as trust. And it's possible that we're using the word differently. So trust in my child means that I trust them to show me what they need from me. I trust them to tell me who they are. And I trust them to show me what, which expectations are realistic for them, which ones need to be adjusted, which ones they can't meet at this point. So that, so that I can meet them where they are. And then when they show me who they are and what they can do, that I trust them where they are. Do you know what I mean? I do understand what you mean, but you need to realize that children don't even know. Right. Yeah. But it's observing them so that we believe their actions, not what they say, but what they do. This is why being a parent is so unforgiving, is you can't expect anything from the child. But as a parent, you have to do everything. Does this make sense? So for example, I can ask my child, who are you? How rude or disrespectful are you? Or, or how disciplined are you? They might give me an answer. They might say, oh, I'm really polite to everybody. But I'm not going to believe their answer for one minute. I'm going to take into account that that's what they told me. Yes. But I'm going to continually watch my child in different situations and try and figure out, okay, when my child is with their friends, how do they act? You know, what's going on? You know, when my child's in this situation, how do they interact with this adult? I'm going to try to be involved as much as I can in the different aspects of different people that my child interacts with. So I know without even them telling me anything exactly where they land. Does this make sense? Oh, yes. I think we're saying the same thing. I, so, I think we are I, too. I yeah, just want to. I mean, sure by children telling me who they are, I mean telling me through observing who they are, not. Yes. Like we can't expect a five-year-old to be like, yeah, this is who I am, like verbally, but showing us and getting, really getting to know them, not on a, what they say, but really coming to know them on a deeper level so that we can yes. provide supports when they need it and step back when they need it. And it's an experimentation. So to do this first principle of individual centered, there's a couple ways to find out who your child is. One is very simple. It's everything everybody knows, but no one ever does, which is listen. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many times I talk to parents about their children, about who they are, what they're doing. And the parent asks, how did you get that out of my child? And I said, I just listened to them. We get on a call every week and I just listen to what they're telling me. And from listening to them, I can piece things together on exactly what's going on. But listening is the first thing you can do. Second thing you can do is actually doing things with them. The more time you spend with them actually doing something, the more you're going to learn 
about your child. The third is experimenting with them. For example, no rules does not mean no rules, but it could mean that you make rules with your child. So it's an experimentation. You say, hey, what rules would you have because we're trying to have this type of household? Well, your child might say, well, maybe we should have a curfew of 10 o'clock. I say, okay. They don't make it in by 10 o'clock, but I observe what time they're coming in on. I realize they always come in past 10 o'clock. They can't do that. So maybe what I'm going to do is maybe we set a rule for 11 o'clock, or maybe we set a rule that if you don't come in at 10 o'clock, you call me up and you let me know where you're at. Maybe you find out that they do follow that rule. If a child follows the rule, it means they want it, right? And so you have to experiment sometimes with what is your child willing to do? Maybe you don't even have to have a rule. Maybe it's you talk to your child and say, hey, can you call me before it gets too late so I know you're okay tonight? And maybe that's all you need to say. Mm -hmm. So the third is experiment with your child. You know, work with your child to do different things in different areas and, and you'll get to know what they're capable of doing and what they're not. Yeah. Okay. So those are three things you can do to kind of be child or individual centric. And that's the first kind of principle. What are the next two? The second is simplicity structured. You have to be simple with children. If your children don't do something, it probably was because they were confused. I can't tell you how many students play video games all day long because they don't know how to make the first step in doing what they want to do in life. I have less than 1% of all the students I've ever talked to have ever said, I want to play video games all day long, or I want to watch YouTube all day long, or I want to tweet and Twitter and just look at my phone all day long. Less than 1%. They always tell me, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer. I want to be someone who gets good grades, or I want to be someone who's successful. So what I have to do is I have to get their big goal, and I have to break it down for them. And I counsel with them on, okay, well, what if you do this? What if you do that? And as I give them ideas on what they can do and and simplify their life for them, they're like, oh, yeah, I should do this. Sometimes I don't even have to tell them what to do. Sometimes as we just talk about it and we break scenarios down, they immediately know what to do. And I can't tell you how many teenagers got off video games, got off things by doing that. Mm -hmm. Simplicity structured means when you talk to them, you don't talk to them for too long. The longer you talk, the more complicated it gets. In our lessons, as we go and give workshops and lessons, if I can't relay one idea in less than five minutes or 10 minutes, then we don't teach it. So everything we teach, every principle we teach to students on leadership can be done in less than a 10-minute lecture. The rest of it is activities, having Mm -hmm. fun with the students, learning the thing with actually doing something. And so simplicity means say less. Mm -hmm. Simplicity also means that you structure things so it's simple. For example, sometimes I found amazing that kids don't even know where things are in their house at a young age. Or they wanna spend time with their parents but they don't know how to find their parents' schedule even. Simplicity means that you have your schedule hanging up on the refrigerator so if your child ever wants to know how they can get a hold of you or where you'll be or what time you have available for them, that it's as easy as just looking on the refrigerator, right? Simplicity is both in physical, as in words, as in understanding their direction in life. Parents and mentors are supposed to make it simple for a child. And one of the things when things are simple is it allows a child to look into the future. If I have a water bottle held up and I release it, 
everyone knows it's going to fall. If I do that experiment a hundred times, every time it's going to fall which way, Laura? Down. You can already predict even before I do the experiment a hundred times what the result will be. And the more simple you make a child's life, the more they can see into their future, the easier their life will be. The more likely they're going to do things, the more likely they're going to listen. Mm-hmm. And so that's the second principle of simplicity structure. Great. The third is action focused. I say action focused because there's only one skill that I worry about my child, but also other children from developing. And that is the ability to change. The only way you learn to improve and to continually improve in your life is to actually do something. And so the only thing I tell parents, if you have to tell your child something, or if you have to try to get your child to do something, make sure it's something different than what they're doing. Try to get them to go and do something different. Operate a different way. If they always study a certain way, try to help them to get that next little step of action, of actually going out and studying maybe a little differently. That will be more efficient or better. And so the last principle is, if I just try to get every child to go out and do something, do something different. It doesn't matter what it is. So for example, in video games, child says, I want to play video games for my life. I want to make it a living. I say, okay, how are we going to improve this week? What are you going to do differently with your video games to make yourself better at them than you did the week before? And I always try and get them to make that next step in whatever they care about. I don't care what they do. It could be skateboarding. It could be, you know, ping pong, whatever it might be. But as long as they learn how to improve and do something differently and and act on it. Yeah, the focus is on the process as opposed to the what. You got it. Yeah. And change and going out and doing something, it actually is a skill. At first, children will be like, what what do I even do? And then they'll know what to do, but they'll be like, I don't want to do it. But as they mature and as you see them develop it, then they're going to be on it. They'll be like, I don't like this. I'm going to do something different. Mm-hmm. And if they can develop that one skill, if it's in video games and they learn to develop in video games, well, that same skill that they learn to become the best video game player is the same skill it takes to become the best lawyer, the best dentist, the best engineer. Mm-hmm. If someone knows how to change in their life and always improve, that's all they need to know to be successful. Yeah, that's powerful. No, that's like it's so powerful focusing on the process as opposed to whatever outcome we think is important versus what they think is important, but using what matters to them in order to, as the, to provide the means for teaching yes. the process. Yeah, I like that. And that's why you have the first two principles there before you get to the third, because individual centered and simplicity structured will allow you to know who your child is and what they want to do. Mm-hmm. It will allow you to simplify life to make it easy for your child to do something. And so when you get to the third principle of action focused, now you know what your child wants to do already. So it's mm-hmm. not like you're trying to force your child to do something they don't want to do. You know what they want to do. You made it simple for them. Now it's just helping them to move yeah. and supporting them in what they want to do. I love that. And so, you know, here at the, the Balanced Parent, we are not dogmatic or, all in, or nothing thinkers. We are trying to take the pieces that work 
for us, for our families and use them in a way that supports our, you know, goals for our families or kind of what we want for our kids. And if I think that this is a great method, if you want your children to grow up knowing who they are and how to go for their dreams, like this seems like the ideal way to do that, to set them up for success. And like, if that's one of your primary goals as a parent is to raise children who are empowered and confident and leaders, like this is the way, right? Or one of the ways. (laughs) And when we say the way, it's the principles are always followed, but it's different for everyone implementing it because individual centered means based upon who your child is, this is going to look different to everyone. And depending on who you are and what you can take, it will look different to every parent. But definitely if you follow the principles, I have never seen a child not be incredibly successful off of this. Now, I do need to warn people though, you need to follow the principles because a no rules, no parenting type philosophy, that doesn't mean you just don't do anything. And it doesn't mean that I give my children a lot of money to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. I've seen very many families that are very affluent, who their children have a lot of freedom, but they don't follow the principles and they don't, they're not involved with their children. And their children have a very, very tough time getting through life. You know, I I always find, you know, they're more unstable. They're more uncertain about their future and they stress and have a lot of the mental disorders come up a lot quicker when you don't follow the principles. Yeah, I think that it's very clear to me that this is a very active form of parenting. It's child-led parenting, where the parent steps back and lets the child be the director, but you are the support crew. Kind of, yes. um, and amazingly, the parent has to do a lot, but it's not necessarily a lot with the child. Yeah, it's a lot of, like, of mental energy and, yeah. Yes, yes. a lot of mm-hmm. observation, a, a lot of mm-hmm. coming up with schemes on what can I do with the structure of our family to make it easier for my child. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the hardest part I've seen with my parents. How do we make a family of eight children work? We're only, there are only two adults who are capable of doing things and eight children who want to do everything and anything that we don't want them to do. How do we create a structure so we stay sane mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and make it easy for the children to feel like they're in a loving environment and be able to pursue their dreams? Yeah, I think too, just kind of as we wrap up, I think it is important to know yourself in the context of your parenting, as it is to know your child, you have to know where your tolerance levels are and be authentic with it and be honest around where your limits are. And it's okay for you to have lower tolerances, like for example, on safety things or ability to kind of self-regulate in the face of your kids having that amount of freedom. It's okay for us to have differences, right? And, you know, it's very tough being a parent because your child's going to be the prideful one, but you can't afford to be prideful as a parent that's doing this type of philosophy. You are always the one to blame. Your child will always blame you and you're always going to be the one who's taking the blame. And you're always going to have to be the one to say you're sorry to your child because that's the only way your child will learn that that's what people do when they're wrong, Mm -hmm. right? Your child's never going to say sorry. You can't expect your child to say sorry. They're young, they're mature, and they're prideful, they're brash because they have no experience. But you always have to be the one to tell your child, look, I'm not perfect. And so when you do these things, you have to forgive me if I get mad at you or I yell at you or I try to control you because it's one of my weaknesses. And to always say you're sorry when they do get on your nerve, 
Mm -hmm. And you do something that's, you know, that's not what you want your child to be like. And so it's it's a very lonely thing, you know, hopefully, you know, you have a a group like your group. It's it's great that you have a, a group of parents so that, you know, you can console each other because that's half of what you need is just someone to say, I've been through that. That's tough. Dang, it's hard. And, and, but just keep going at it. Yeah. And we'll do better next time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mistakes, like there's no perfect parent. No parent gets it right. A hundred percent of the time mistakes are part of the process and they're an important part of the process because through our mistakes as parents, we get to model to our kids. How do you show up in a loving authentic relationship as an imperfect being with self-compassion and responsibility taking and continual striving for improvement all at the same time, right? Like we get to model that for our kids. It's beautiful. And it is tough. And I have a almost a year old, he's 11 months and he does not like to be controlled at all, even being a baby, but I have to be creative. And in just the other day, we're feeding him and in his high chair, he's like, coming forward and pushing himself back really violently against the chair. And the grandmother was saying, no, don't do that. No, no. And I was watching him and I said, you know, you need to realize the child's doing what they're doing for a reason. Mm -hmm. So I realized the child doesn't like to be constrained and it's a safe enough chair and he's big enough that you don't really have to have the harness on. So I just released the harness and he stopped doing it. And then he just ate the rest of his meal, you know, peacefully and just like, you know, attentive and whatnot. And I I started to realize, wow, this is, this is tough stuff Mm because you got to really be creative in, in dealing with a child because a lot of times they'll do things that you're, you're like, that's not good. But in order not to do your control method, you have to be really innovative and creative and, and you really have to, to develop yourself well. Right. And you have to be able and willing to look under the surface of the behavior and find out what's driving it. I mean, all, yes. you know, behavior is communication, right? They're, that's how they communicate what they need and who they are. And what's important to them is through their behavior, through their play, through their actions. And we have to be keen observers of that. There are very few children who will ever do something purposefully that's what we consider wrong. That's what we consider, you know, rude or harmful to others. Children only do what they know. And so, and I've I've seen it over and over again with young children, as well as with older children and adults. (laughs) Well, Jacob, thank you so much for your time today and sharing with us your quite unusual experience you had growing (laughs) up and the wisdom that you've taken from it and all of the work that you do. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. It's, It's been great being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out. Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, that's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other, and most importantly of yourself. And just remember balance is a verb and you're already doing it. 
You've got this.